Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, how are you? I'm I'm very good, thank you very much, Kevin. I, w- I went to the theatre last night for the first time in, well, since since lockdown. It was just nice to watch proper people doing proper things in, in terms of the art. So, yeah, I think things are looking up and also... Uh, I'm hoping to be able to go and visit my old mum now because today Ireland's lifted all restrictions. So Indeed, it's, it's been a long time. It's been a long time. And when they say restrictions in Ireland, they mean restrictions. <laughs> yes. You, for a happy-go-lucky country, it's amazing how seriously they've been taking their restrictions. It's like, where are you going? Your foot's outside the door. What? Oh, no, I'm sorry, I didn't know. I was going to the shop. There are no shops. Um, and yes, um, we're recording this on Saturday because you've got... Uh, You've got a long trip to Leicester tomorrow, Kieran. How many tickets have you had to buy? Uh, I think it's 13 tickets in total in order to, to try to get a rail fare, which is uh, doesn't involve a second mortgage. It's, it's absolutely crazy, uh, A, the system, and, and B, the prices. Yeah, see, uh, unfortunately, uh, this, this is why you're living in a lovely big house in a vineyard, and I'm not. It's because <laughs> it drives Ali up the wall, but I'm very much of the, ah, sod it, we'll go first class. <laughs> credit card will deal with that. I'm sure some money will come in in the next 30 days to cope with that. You start booking the tickets. You think, oh, I can't do this. Just get me the easiest ticket to Leicester. Um, I was, you know what? I nearly said good luck then, Kieran. I caught myself just in time. <laughs> careful, careful. <laughs> um, now, Kieran, let's break with the habit of a lifetime and let's start this questions pod with some news, which we've done before. But it's news about Derby, which we've done before a lot. But, it, Kieran, fingers crossed it could be some news of the first light at the end of the tunnel for Derby fans, could it not? Yes. Optimism, cautious optimism, certainly. Um, the, the the PA, uh, or sorry, AP, Associated Press, or one of the big press organisations yesterday did report um, that Carlisle Capital, which is a US-based investment house, have put in a, a formal offer of... Twenty-eight million pounds to to buy Derby County. It, it looks as if that doesn't include the stadium because the stadium's not under the control of the administrators. But it it does seem uh, slightly weird that twenty-four minute sorry twenty-four hours after the administrators said nobody's prepared to bid for the club yeah. because of the outstanding claims from Wickham and Middlesbrough, uh, Carlisle Capital has said, "Well, we're bidding twenty-eight million pounds and." We, we will see. We, we will just see how things develop in terms of those claims, um, and yeah, there's, there, there is always a negotiated settlement uh, yeah. with regards to things like this. So uh, that that is promising. Um, there are two other parties interested. One of which is local. One of which is Mike Ashley. They're both, of course, keeping cards close to their chests. Yeah. But um, I, I think Derby County fans have been through a very torrid uh, seven days and this is a a positive step so we are hoping things will develop from here yeah it was, uh, things were quite torrid on the pitch about 15 minutes ago weren't they at the end of that forest derby game as well um what do we know about these people kieran and is 28 million pound a reasonable offer in the circumstances um they, they are an investment house so um, they will be looking for some form of return on their investment, right. but there's certainly a lot of interest from the US in English football. Yeah, we've discussed this before that the price of buying into 
the MLS is probably going to cost you three to four hundred million dollars. Yeah. So therefore, for you know, a, a real fraction of you know ten percent of that, you you can buy into the English Championship. Um, there, you're, you're not far away from the Premier League. And then there's the positives about Derby. You're buying into a ready-built fan base, uh, club with lots of history and heritage. Yes, they don't own the ground, but the landlord, who is effectively Mel Morris, is he's not got them over a barrel in the sense that if if they don't use it, well, where else is he going to get some rent from? Yeah. So, you know, there there is... Again, there is a negotiation to be had with regard to to the stadium. Is it a fair price? Well, what are they buying? They're buying the name. They're buying that that share in the EFL. They're buying the existing squad. Although I'm, I'm always a little bit wary about squads because people say, well, they could sell the players, but if they sell the players, you've then got to go and buy players to replace yeah, them. So yeah, yeah. yeah that's that sort of more of a, of a fixture. Um, I think it's a it's it's a reasonable opening bid. Um, I don't think it would be enough to avoid a further fifteen point penalty um, when the club comes out of administration, unless some of the preferred creditors, the likes of HMRC, are willing to take a discount. I can't see MSD Holdings, who who lent money to the club, who who've got the mortgage, they're not going to take a discount. They're a bank, yeah. They, they've they've yeah. Um, that, that they are immune from all pressure, but there could be political pressure put on HMRC. We don't know whether how much resistance will come back from that, um, and that Arsenal, I think, are owed around about eight million. That's a football credit again. That that is going to be paid in full. I think we've got to be realistic there. The Wickham and the Middlesbrough claims. Nobody knows their status, and and that's an ongoing discussion. Okay. Um. Yeah, so it, it, it's qualified good news then, which which is the first time we've been able to use the phrase good news when it comes to Derby at all. So qualified or not, that's a, a positive, optimistic note to start the pod on. Um, yes, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, and it, it's, I mean, whether this could be an absolute masterstroke by the administrators. Seven days ago, they, they put out a fairly incendiary message on the uh, on the club website yeah. um that provoked a reaction from lots of other parties uh you've got to give a lot of credit to the derby fans because what they've done is they've done the smart things they've got mobilized they've got organized they've bombarded mps so we ended up with the the matter being spoken about in the house of commons yeah. and all of a sudden that the pressure comes on um middlesbrough have Announced, put a statement on their website. The EFL have put out a statement on their website. Rick Parry's been going on the radio, although he seems to blame it all on what, what he refers to as noise and social media for the problems uh, for, for the lack of progress, which, which I think is a bit counterintuitive. If it hadn't been for the Derby fans using social media and other forms of media to, to increase the attention, I don't think we would be where we are today in terms of the progress that's been made. Yeah, I've just written down Rick Parry, counterintuitive, question mark, exclamation mark. Um, I understand, Kieran, that the management of the Price of Football podcast, i.e. you and Guy, uh, have attempted to contact Carlisle, Holy American Investor. So with any luck, we may get some uh, statement, at least from them, by the time we do our next pod on Thursday but let's leave it there with the fact that we can say Derby fans possibly there is a, a little ray of light at the end of that tunnel uh, and let's go with our questions and our first two questions Kieran are about subjects that we have 
spoken about, but these are specific questions on them. So I'm happy to ask you about them. And there are two areas that our listeners and most football fans seem to come back to time and time again. The first question comes from Nathan Gunn. Uh, Nathan says, could you explain how clubs value their academy graduates? With there being minimal costs involved, would their value just be the contract value? And secondly, how often would a club need to revalue an academy graduate as they improve? Maybe use Marcus Rashford as an example. A name like Nathan Gunn, I'm so jealous of that. That sounds like a that sounds like a spy or a or a pilot or something sort of really exciting. Ah, do you know what? Um, I thought pirate. I thought maybe I went from Ben Gunn from Robinson to, to Treasure Island. But but it's a, whatever the circumstances. Sorry about this, Nathan. We will get round to your question, but it is a cool name. Yes, it's absolutely. A, it's a great name. It's 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 the sort of name Homer Simpson would take for himself if he were going undercover. In the FBI. But anyway, on with the question, on with the answer. On with the question, absolutely. Yes, another BAFTA flies out the window. <laughs> we haven't got a big enough mantelpiece, Kieran, let's face it. <laughs> um, as far as academy players are concerned and the rules for treating footballers is that they have to be measured at cost and it's the cost of the player's registration so if a player is coming through the ranks from you know being spotted at a young age uh, going into the the club uh, youth set up and getting getting past the academy then being given a, a full-time contract there's actually zero specific cost you might say, well, hold on, what about the cost of the academy? Well, that's, that's just a general overhead. You could have one season where you, you've got 100 players in your academy and none of them move on to the first team, and then the next year four of them do. So, so what, the, what the clubs do is that they write off all of the development costs of the players because at that young age, there is no guarantee that a player who looks really promising at 13 or 14 continues to develop and eventually is in a position to be offered a, uh, a first-team squad place. So as, as far as academy graduates are concerned, they uh, are shown at zero cost in the accounts, which is which is absolutely nuts in, in many ways. You know, the fact that we've got Harry Kane at, uh, Harry Kane at Spurs, we've got Marcus Rashford uh, at Manchester United, we've got uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold at, uh, at Liverpool and so on, as far as the accountants are concerned, those players have zero value. Now, and, and that's because cost and value are not the same things. The accountants focus on cost. We would be looking at market value. So when we take a look at the um, Manchester United accounts, for example, that says that the Manchester United squad in total costs £861 million. But it doesn't mean that it's worth that because Marcus Rashford... Uh, we've got Greenwood, we've got uh, Scott McTominay, we've got Jesse Lingard. Got, yeah, Manchester United have got, got a, a, a well-known uh, development pathway, uh, and yet those players are shown at a zero cost. So, the, unfortunately, the balance sheet is absolutely garbage in terms of being close to reality and uh, should not be relied upon. Okay. Uh, our next question comes from Steve Hancock's uh not quite as cool a name as Nathan Gunn, and I imagine possibly troublesome until his friends were about 15 or over. Um, <laughs> now, Steve is asking the question, nothing seems to fascinate football fans and our listeners more than who plays, who pays, I beg your pardon, uh, loan players. Uh, and Stephen's asked us about this again, but this is a specific question, which is why I'm happy to discuss it further. Steve says, I support Exeter City, who have recently signed a player on a season-long loan. 
With many clubs' recent money troubles, it made me wonder who would pay the player directly during the loan spell and could there potentially be a situation where Exeter City would pay the player's club but due to finance at that pair of clubs, the, the player may not be paid on time or at all. It seems to me that this could be potentially harsh on Exeter City as they would have a demotivated or unhappy player through no fault of their own. Yeah, I think this is uh, this is a fascinating one. The The player's contract of employment is with his parent club. Yeah. So they are responsible for the monthly salary because players get paid monthly, not weekly, despite despite the way that we, and we're just as bad you know, at this as everybody else. We, we always talk about players uh, in terms of their weekly income. Um, but the ultimately, the employment contract is signed between player and club. Um, what will then happen is that when the player goes out on loan, there'll be a, a separate arrangement between the parent club and the loanee club. But he's he's absolutely right. We, we could have this somewhat ludicrous situation that um, Exeter have agreed a loan fee with the parent club. They are paying those monies across in good faith. And then due to the, the personal circumstances of the parent, that money isn't coming through to the, the player. Now, it could be that the, uh, the player would have a separate uh, sort of contract uh, with Exeter City in terms of bonuses, you know, win bonuses, promotion bonuses, um, and so on, as would the, the parent club. So I, I did contact our friend Jonathan, uh, the, the Jonathan Booker, the, the agent, yeah. and he says it's you know, it varies from contract to contract. Um, it's, it's not circumstances that he's heard of, fingers crossed, as far as any of his uh, clients are concerned. Um, but uh, what's it, it will get it will get very very messy, and uh, I think that it was really a matter for club secretaries to sort out between themselves. Mm. Now we've been talking a lot about copyright recently since the hilarious story about West Brom and Brighton copywriting a word, um, <laughs> namely Albion. Which maybe well, I was listening to Radio Three the other day, and, and there was a piece of music by the Albion Quartet, and I very nearly phoned up and said, <laughs> "They got permission. Those cello players got permission to." Um, Sorry, the fact that there would be people stunned again. Listening to Radio 3, what happened? I was on the way to Radio 5 and got bored, essentially. Um, <laughs> but Nicholas Webb has another question about copyright, and it's uh, a really interesting oh, – sorry, my voice. You can see when I, when I genuinely think something's interesting, my voice gets a little bit higher. Um, Nicholas says, the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, are famously, famously rigorous in protecting the Olympic brand. Yet, football clubs in France and Belgium often have the word Olympic or Olympic in their names, such as Marseille, Lyon, Lille and Charlois. How has this come about? Have they had to seek agreement with the IOC? Possibly the clubs predate the IOC, I don't know. but And also the Olympics based on the ancient Greece. But an interesting question, Kieran, on Yes, um, and again, we've I've had a chat with uh, uh, a a sort of copyright lawyer uh, who, who knows a lot of IP, sort of in general. And I think we we, uh, we we've mentioned this is are are those football clubs trying to financially benefit from the Olympics in terms of you know the five rings and so on? Yeah, and, and there's no evidence of that. So. Um, that there's, they, they shouldn't be any uh, any issues here. Um, what the IOC are always concerned about is somebody selling 
hookie merchandise, somebody setting up a website, sets, you know, it's going to sell uh, you know, Olympic, uh, Olympic eau de cologne uh, using the five rings as a symbol. Now, now it's, that would be uh, where uh, the IOC are likely to, to send in the, the silver tongue friends to, to protect their copyright because they, they're trying to protect their brand, they're trying to protect quality control, um, and, and also they're, they're trying to monetize uh, their name. Um, the, these football clubs, as you say, that the names of the football clubs uh, will often predate the Olympics uh, movement itself, uh, and therefore they, they'll be able to, to use that. Uh, and there's no evidence that they are trying to gain a financial benefit from the use of that word. All right. So there used to be the Olympic kebabs in Tufnell Park, but they're probably all right, aren't they? I think so. Yeah, Albion kebabs still exist in Brighton. Yeah, so, of course. Yeah. Unless, of course, the Olympic kebabs have got five big things of lamb going round, all in different <laughs> colours. Um, our next question comes from oh, Mike. Do you know I'm quite good at English, Kieran? But some of the, the there's a combination of vowels at the end of this name A U G H. It could could be anything. It could be ock. Could be ouch. Could be o. But it's from Colin, so I'm going to go for Colin Easto. Uh, and Colin, I apologise if I've chosen the wrong pronunciation, but Colin Easto. As a very simple question about uh, a group we do discuss quite often, have you ever looked at the accounts of the Professional Footballers Association? I imagine, Kieran, the answer to that is yes. Are you ever allowed to talk about them? It's probably a different matter. Um, well, the answer to those, both of those questions is yes. Um, I, I look at the accounts of the Professional Footballers Association trade union because all trade unions have to submit uh, an annual return under the 1982 Trade Unions Act. Um, and that details where the trade union gets uh, its money from and, and how that money is spent. So as far as uh, the, the PFA trade union is concerned, it's got 5,400 members. Um, it, uh, it gets about £115 in, in membership fees from each member right. uh, in overall. That works out as 2% of its total income. Uh, I'm, I'm a trade union member. Um, my subs are a lot more than that. So I'm, yeah. I think that's a quite quite a good deal. Um, the vast majority of the, the the money that's generated by the, by the PFA trade union um, is from TV deals. And, and uh, uh, the way that it works is the every few years, the, the Premier League renegotiates a deal with the broadcasters. It goes to the PFA and says, uh, you're, on, you're on 5% or whatever it is um, of the TV money. Um, we, we think that's too much. Will you reduce it? And Gordon Taylor, uh, when it was him, he would turn around and say, mm, no, yeah. we've, got, we've got a contract. Why should we? And then the, the, uh, the, the Premier League starts... Uh, Getting uh, getting friendly with the fourth estate, putting out stories about you know about the greedy trade union, but um, that that's you know, why why should they? Yeah, you know, let's face it, we we go to football to watch footballers, not not owners or or anything else. Um, in terms of the, the 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 costs of running the union, um, it has got a pretty high wage cost, eight point three million. Um, it it does show the financial details of the of the highest paid member there i think uh, gordon taylor he got a, a 1.2 million pound bonus and a 700,000 pound severance fee <laughs> uh, on top of his salary so you know that that always uh, generates a lot of attention um but they they also put a lot of money out to donations and to, to other causes so we've got the 
PFA Trade Union. Then there is a company called PFA Enterprises. I've looked at their accounts as well. Not particularly exciting. And then thirdly, we've got the PFA Charity, which is now it's a sort of a separate entity, and that focuses on the donations to uh, education for members, for uh, giving money to grassroots to to good causes, um, and also you know something which has been in in the, in the public domain um, as far as the the long term health of the membership, which clearly is critical from from the trade unions' perspective, um, looking at. Uh, issues such as dementia or early onset of dementia uh, from people in the industry. So um, that is the uh, that's the PFA finances um, summarised in three minutes. That's no. We should we should take that out and put it on some kind of social media thing and get loads of I don't know how these things work, but it's a very succinct description. Um, so that one hundred and fifteen pound fee is the same whether you're Cristiano Ronaldo or whether you're playing for a team in League Two. I, I think they are standard fees. I mean, I, I, I may be wrong. Um, um, and uh, there's, of, of the 5,000, all I did, I took the total membership fee and divided it by the number of members. But I would imagine it would be a, a constant fee because each, each player is, you know, as as a trade union member myself, I, I put in the same subs each each month as, as, as every other person. And, you know, there, there's people on far more money than I am and, and probably some people on less as well. Um, so it's, it's not, a, it's not a percentage of your income. It's, it's a, uh, it, it's, it's a standard amount. Um, and, um, it's noticeable that, uh, we, we are now starting to get, uh, women members of the PFA as well. Um, so, so they're, they're starting to take up, uh, uh, part of being the union as well. Okay, our next question comes from Martin Lee. And Martin is a Celtic fan. And he says, my question is centred around the investment company, Linzel Train, who have large shareholdings in Celtic, Man United and Juventus. I believe Celtic are one club who pay out dividends. Is that normal for PLC football clubs to pay dividends to shareholders? And could Linzel Train ever influence player movements between the above clubs or possibly stop one of these clubs from selling to a league rival? For example, stop Man United selling a player to Inter or Rangers? Um, yeah, with, uh, in answer to, to Martin's questions, I mean, Celtic pay a, a very specific dividend the, to, to the regular shareholders. I don't think they get a dividend, but the, this, this American investment company it owns, uh, I think, it owns 17 million shares in Celtic. It owns a quarter of the shares in Manchester United that are traded on the New York Stock Exchange. Right. Um, if people say, wow, that sounds a lot, uh, it doesn't actually convert in a, into a very high percentage of the votes because the Glazer family own all of the shares which are not traded on the stock market, and they've got 10 votes for every share, whereas the Linzel train shares only have one vote per share. Um, but in relation to the their investment in Manchester United, um, and also Juventus, they own 11% of Juventus. Uh, Lindsay Train went really public and, and really sort of studs up on both of those clubs uh, when the Super League was announced, saying it was absolutely appalling behaviour. Uh, as shareholders, they were really disappointed oh. that the, the companies involved didn't seem to understand uh, the nature of competitive football and the importance of it to, you know, culture heritage history so that that was that was unusual because you know, normally from an investment house you just, they're just interested in bottom line yeah, of course um I, I suspect they are 
um, not over happy with those investments um, at present because Manchester United shares on Friday, um, they just dropped to a 12-month low and Manchester United at first appeared on the New York Stock Exchange in 2012 and the shares uh, 10 years, almost 10 years later, uh, are now trading below the, the price uh, way back when. So um, they're, they're not particularly uh, impressed with uh, the way that uh, the club's being managed. Uh, one can only conclude from that. In terms of the ability to stop players moving from one club to another, um, from what I can see, they don't have representation on the board. So they're unlikely to be able to influence things. What they could try to do is to use their their shares to uh, put forward a, a measure at the annual general meeting, some form of vote of no confidence. But because of the way that the shareholdings are are organised, I suspect it wouldn't make a lot of traction. Mm. Our next question comes from Alan Day. Well, hello, Alan. Uh, on a previous episode, Kieran said that Brighton will receive 20% of any sell-on fee should Arsenal decide to transfer Ben White. If Arsenal chose a player swap instead, would Brighton be missing out or are there clauses in place that ensure a sum would be paid to Brighton? Yeah, yeah I've, I've got no memory at all of saying anything about a 20% oh, sell-on clause. Mate, which, well, which, Kieran, welcome to my world. Seriously. This is what it's like I, for me every single pod. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. I, I think I, it, it is genuinely a, a function of of old age, you know. Because I'm, I, if, if I go for less than four wees overnight these days, I'm I'm sort of you know high fiving myself. It's just, Kieran, you're it's, drinking, it's just horrendous. You're drinking too much water. I've told you. How, how many times have I told you about this? For God's sake, Kieran, stop drinking that water. Bad for you. <laughs> it is. It is. It is. Um, but uh, I think Alan raises a. Uh, a very good point here uh, in terms of sell-on clauses. Are they open to manipulation? The answer is potentially yes, um, because nobody knows what a footballer is worth. And so therefore, when you have a swap deal, and, and we've, we've covered this um, on quite a few occasions before, especially in relation to Juventus and, and the swap Indeed. of Pjanic yeah. and Arthur, and Juventus are now being investigated by the financial police uh, in in Italy that um, you know, it's just like a painting. It's just like anything which is unique, a unique piece of art or a unique uh, set of talents that you're acquiring from a professional footballer. There's, there's no correct price. And then some people will say, well, let's go to transfer market. That'll be good. But if you actually read transfer market, I mean, that their own uh, chief executive has said, um, people, the, the, yeah, transfer market is the it's the equivalent of Wikipedia. Anybody can can effectively edit it. Anybody can make a contribution. It doesn't necessarily mean that what you what you see there in terms of values um, are accurate. Yeah, overall, yeah, it's probably about as reliable as the Riven method. If you, if you wanted to go and value a squad overall, and therefore um, the clubs themselves could agree a value which means that they have to pay less um, in the in the event of a player swap. There could be an appeal from the club, which feels it's been uh, dealt harshly by, but yeah, that's going to be slow and expensive to resolve. I remember uh, as a very embarrassed 12-year-old amongst 30 other embarrassed 12-year-olds, an embarrassed priest telling us about the Riven Method 
which is you just think it's very complicated, isn't it? That's, that's a real, that's an awful lot of trouble. That's not going to happen, is it? And then showing us the map of the woman's insides, but you think that looks like a goat's head. That's it's, <laughs> it's, it's the perils of being at an all-boys school. It's like just, just for the love of God, let us grow up and find out for ourselves. Um, there's nothing like a man who's never had sex teaching 12-year-old boys. <laughs> um, our next question comes from Jim Brown. Uh, and if Jim Brown wasn't a centre-back, for a second division club in the 70s. I'll be amazed. That's a proper <laughs> solid name, isn't it, Jim Brown? Uh, Jim's question is, do clubs charge lower status clubs to play pre-season friendlies? My club, Coventry, who I wouldn't describe as lower status, entertained Wolves in the summer. Would Wolves have charged Coventry anything? I understand that massive clubs like Real Madrid charge clubs to play friendlies. Um, if, it's, if it's a domestic match, the chances are no, no because... Uh, both clubs are looking just to get some, you know, get, get some experience in the legs, you know, to, to have a run out for, the, for their players. Um, part of the reason why there were so many domestic uh, pre-season matches taking place in, in the summer of 2021, of course, was COVID related. Uh, you know, clubs, clubs were reluctant to go overseas. Um, so therefore, they were looking for domestic opponents. Um, there, there, there could potentially be, if the club is particularly glamorous, they they, they might ask for a uh, a promotion fee. Uh, certainly, if it's an overseas match, then then they will have been speaking to a local promoter um, and, and agreeing a fee in advance uh, because these are exhibition matches. Yeah, we see these pre-season tournaments in Asia, in the US, Africa, Australia, Australia, and so on. Um, but for for you know for the likes of let, let's be honest, yeah, Brighton Palace, Wolves, and so on, um, it's not a big enough brand. To, to be able to guarantee uh, a huge sums. So th- there'll be, uh, yeah, we'll pay for your expenses perhaps, or we- we'll give you 20% of the of the take if you're lucky, but uh, th- th- it doesn't tend to be much of an issue. Uh, when Julian Speroni became eligible for his testimonial, or as he should be called, the blessed St. Julian Speroni of Purley, uh, Steve Parrish offered him the big, he said, we'll pay for the big clubs, we'll get Barcelona, we'll get Real Madrid. And Julian went, no, I want Dundee. Uh, they, they, they were the club that brought me over. They were the club that made me very welcome. I want Dundee uh, to play in my testimony. And so we played Dundee and they bought 3,000 fans down. Superb. Yeah. Well, well they would have bought 3,500, but a whole train of them were hoiked off at Newcastle, for, <laughs> 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 which we had, which was a behaviour when we found out we admired very much. But no, I've, I, I, fair play to Julian for that. Uh, our penultimate question comes from Jacob Tidy. Um, and if Jim Brown was a centre-back, Jacob Tidy surely is a cartoonist on a satirical magazine, isn't he? You'd think. <laughs> um, Jacob's uh, question is a very interesting one. Uh, there was a recent proposal by the European Commission published on regulating foreign state investment in EU football clubs, uh, as is already the case with state aid from inside the EU. How do you see this impacting upon current investment by states, for example, Qatar at PSG, and is this likely to increase the attractiveness of British clubs to this sort of investment as we are no longer in the EU? In- intriguing one, this from, from Jacob. Yeah. Um, my, my understanding is that the European Commission will only investigate if the, uh, if the revenues of the, the business are more than 500 million euro. So therefore, that, that would include the likes of uh, PSG. Uh, and what they say is that if there is any form of foreign subsidy, so if, if there is a, a third party state which is 
distorting the internal market. So it could be argued or somebody could complain that the amount of money that PSG receive from uh, Qatar uh, uh, means that they have a dominant position in the market, which distorts the ability of other clubs to to run from from a financial perspective and to generate returns. And under that, if, if that is the case, then the European Commission does have powers. It can it can adorn rain, raids on the club. Uh, it can it can make some pronouncements. So um, it it certainly does have potential consequences for the football industry. Um, and uh, in respect of Jacob's second element of his question, um, those rules don't apply in in the UK. Um, I, I think uh, which does make. Uh, the investment more attractive. But as we have seen with uh, Newcastle, uh, even though it could, there might be no government uh, resistance to uh, overseas investment, there could be resistance from the remaining clubs in the competition. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, the Premier League is now backdating rules to, to 2016 uh, in respect of all uh, if, if it's all sponsorship deals to, to determine whether or not they're, they're what they refer to as fair market value. But again, I don't know what fair market yeah. value is. And just, just because somebody in a, you know, in a pair of red braces and a spotted bow tie uh, with, uh, you know, who, who claims to be a marketing and brand value expert says something, I'm, I'm not quite sure where they get their numbers from either. Hmm. I'm not sure where they get the red braces from these days either. Well, I can picture the sort of person you're talking about. Uh, you can buy red braces anywhere, I imagine. I don't think red braces are that difficult to get. I don't know why I even embarked on that. So I never did improv when I was younger. Um, we had a, a very interesting interview with the new owner of Bedford FC uh, last week, uh, whose ambition is incredible, incredible ambition. But Henry Robert Shaw asks you, Kieran, whether you think there's a glass ceiling for fan-owned clubs, particularly those as reluctant to accept outside investment as my club, AFC Wimbledon? Um, I, I think, realistically, there is. Um, and I would say that that's, that's League One, uh, with the aim of, of getting promoted to the championship, and then your aim in the championship is to avoid relegation. Um, and the reason why I say that is that if you take a look at the finances of championship clubs, the average losses for a championship club in 2020 were £527,000 per week. Yeah. Now, for that to succeed, you need somebody who has the, you know, has the resources to be able to write out that check on a regular basis. Um, and uh, for all of the amazing uh, activities of of the fan owned clubs and, and you know high five to all of them. We've had lots of you know, contact with them uh, over since we started the show, and I've got huge amounts of admiration. Um, it, it normally falls on a committee of you know six to eight people at the club to to do everything and uh, to to expect them to raise uh, half half a million pounds a week is unrealistic. Yeah, so. If, if a club does get, I think at League One, we, we've seen clubs go up who are broadly breaking even, um, and then they tend to struggle in the championship. You know, and we've ended up with sort of, you know, whilst we talk about yo-yo clubs between the Premier League and the championship and the likes of Watford and West Brom and Fulham tend to get mentioned in Norwich as well, I think we've also established something quite similar in, in the championship and League One. Uh, you know, Barnsley and Rotherham, Wickham, who were relegated last season, 
upon being promoted, they're now you know, towards the top of that division. So, so we, we've got clubs who who are in that that region where they come up. They've not got huge fan bases, but uh, they 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 keep they live within their means and and they they struggle to avoid uh, relegation. So, I, I think it's that League One certainly get put together a good squad, get promoted, go up to the championship. Are you likely to go any further? Uh, it it would it would take a miracle or three or four fantastic loan signings. Yeah, I, I suppose the other problem for fan owned clubs as well is the further up the league you go, the less you can rely on volunteers. You you have to start paying professional people. Uh, you know, in, in terms of press agents and and chief executives and so on and so forth, don't you? Then, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, spoiler alert here, Kieran. We. We, you and I, and Guy may be, may be visiting AFC Wimbledon soon for some kind of live show. Who knows? Details are being planned at the moment. But do we know why AFC Wimbledon are reluctant to accept outside investment? Um, I, I think it's because as far as decision-making is concerned, they've they've achieved so much in in, first of all, getting to the Football League and secondly returning to you know what they consider to be their roots that um, if they can do that on the basis of being fan owned and uh, keeping things internal and ha- therefore having less politics that's how they'd like to go forwards as well. It, it, it's been one of the most remarkable stories in football the, 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 the tragic death of Wimbledon and the rebirth of AFC Wimbledon they have worked Really hard. Yet we see some clubs like Wrexham who who kind of take a more realistic approach. And when a wealthy Hollywood investor comes in, they decide to go reluctantly or not for that option, don't they? Yep. Yep. Yeah. You stopped there, didn't you? you just. I, <laughs> I, 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 asked, I asked you. I finally, after two years, asked you a question that you could only answer yes to. <laughs> um, and on that note. BAFTA's gone, doesn't mind, fine. Thank you to everybody who's made a donation to the pod via our Patreon site. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the always free-to-air pod, then that's lovely and kind of you. Please go to patreon.com slash priceoffootball. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. And in the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kira Maguire for the now keenly anticipated and customary <laughs> farewell. <laughs> Put too much pressure on you now, aren't I? <laughs> yes, you have indeed. Um, well, as always, uh, thank you for the feedback. Uh, thank you for engaging with us uh, on on various forms of media. Some of you email, some of you uh, uh, some of you send us messages uh, on on Twitter. Uh, some of those are favourable, and some of those are not. And, and we, you know, we, we've we've got to accept what comes our way. Um, if, if you if you want to support us on Patreon, it costs as little as, as a pound a month, and, and we are genuinely grateful. Um, but if if you want to take an alternative uh, way of supporting the show, if you want to give us some some good karma, which which helps us uh, in the charts, which helps us with sponsors and guests, it just gives us a bit more credibility. Um, if you, if you go to your app and uh, if you could give us a review, uh, yeah, we, we, we always like five stars. If if you think we deserve it, we're 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 we're, we're dead chuffed. Um, it, but it, you you can give a written review, and apparently it doesn't matter. What do you say? You could say you would rather the show was presented by Dominic Raab and the Cheeky Girls, and it wouldn't make a blind bit of difference, by all accounts, according to producer Guy. <laughs> oh, make a bit of difference to the Cheeky Girls, I'm guessing. But there you are. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. The price of football.
that provides some football.